You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello and welcome to The Agenda podcast from Wednesday the 28th of February, bringing you the best bits of today's show. And we were asking whether we should ban scrolling on mobile phones in public because a French town says yes. It's even held a referendum. But will it encourage people to talk to each other more? We asked the experts. We also took a look at the eternal issue of traffic congestion and specifically the potential help that could come from a major upgrade of the Al Kale Road. We learned more about work that's getting underway to repair damaged walls at Dubai Creek and hopefully better protect them from flooding. And staying on the water, we learned more about this year's Dubai Boat Show and about the jet suit race that's kicking things off there in spectacular style. Would you don a jet suit? You might feel differently once you hear more. Hello, hello. Welcome back. It's time for a big question, I think. Could you leave your phone at home or at least in your handbag when you're out in public? I don't think it's as easy as you think it might be, is it? I mean, if you lived in one suburb of Paris, though, you might not have a choice because residents in the village of Seine-Port have voted in a referendum to ban scrolling on their streets and in their shops and at their school gates and in cafes and in restaurants. And that's not all. Officials say that parents who promise not to give their kids a smartphone before the age of 15 will also be given a free dumb phone handset to be used for safety purposes. So basically they can only call on it and presumably play snake. I think that's what I used to do when I had a dumb phone. I wonder how does that whole thing make you feel? Do you think it's a great idea or does it make you feel a bit itchy just thinking about leaving the house without your phone? Text us your thoughts on 4001 please. These residents have been in touch. They have let's say mixed opinions. I think it's a very good idea. The number of people that walk into you when they're playing on their phone is ridiculous. So this might be controversial. I don't mind scrolling. What I do mind is sound. So I think it's okay. Maybe you're working. Maybe this is a time where you're at the hairdresser and you just want to have some time to yourself. The only thing I ask is that you don't have the sound on. No, I don't want to because I currently live in a city. But if I live in a place with 2,000 people, maybe yes, because I would know the people around, their faces are familiar, and there wouldn't be any problem with it, not scrolling in public. Couldn't agree more with the person who talked about sound, but... Right, it's maybe time for a confession here because over the Christmas holidays, I actually deleted all social media from my phone because I felt like... I couldn't resist a scroll. I'd pick up my phone to answer it. I'd pick it up to read a message and I'd kind of lose 45 minutes down a scroll hole. And I think you're never really off when you work in news. You're kind of constantly feeling like you have to stay up to date. And I was spending far too much time on it. So over the Christmas holidays, I deleted Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I kept WhatsApp, but I got rid of everything else. And I felt genuinely angsty for about three days. I kept picking up my phone and not being able to do anything with it. I felt really uncomfortable. And then I felt more uncomfortable about the fact that I felt uncomfortable. It sort of acknowledging that you might have a bit of an addiction is not a comfortable place to be. Zena is in the studio with me. Producer Zena, how do you feel about it? Could you live with your mobile phone not coming out in public? Just thinking about it makes me really anxious. 
Um, yeah. And I know I'm addicted. And my kids have been telling me that. My husband has been telling me that. But I can't seem to let go of my phone, essentially because my work is there. Um, and I communicate with friends via the phone like everyone else. Um, and just the feeling of being disconnected from the world gives me anxiety because Dubai is such a such a connected place, right? So you don't check your phone for an hour, you miss so much, you get 100 WhatsApp messages, and it just gives me FOMO. It's probably not a very nice way to be, but I feel relieved hearing you say that, that it's not just my husband and kids that are like, <laughs> can you put your phone down, oh my please? Goodness. At least we're together in it. Zina has been speaking to Dr. Rodi Al-Nawar. He's consultant neurologist at Reem Hospital Abu Dhabi. And he said, while an outright ban's probably unrealistic for most people, reducing our use would be a good idea, probably. Our smartphones take a very important part of our days. We cannot stop completely our phones or using our phones because usually, you know, all our job, our study, our life is based on the smartphones. But we should, as much as possible, control our addiction to our smartphones, starting by each one. And then if there is any regulation, let's say, in restaurants, at school, if it can help the person to avoid being most of the time scrolling on the phone, why not? It's a good idea to keep a little bit some like space from our uh, devices. I'm joined on Teams by Rob Sparrow. He's a professor of philosophy at the Menashe Data Futures Institute. And Rob, you spend a lot of time looking at, I guess, the impact of technology on our societies. What do you make of this? So this is a non-enforceable ban. Yes. Uh, it's, you know, it's legislation as an expression of community feeling, and that's an important, uh, that's an important uh, gesture. I, I mean, I think what people are describing, which is that they can't stop using their phones, having some social support, people disapprove of you when you're using your phone, uh, that's a good thing and might help people have a more healthy relationship with their device. That's really interesting. Is that essentially more of a motivator? That idea that you might be kind of disapproved of, is that what it takes to make people rethink a behaviour? Humans are very social creatures. People basically do what everyone else around them uh, is doing. If it becomes seen to be rude to be on your phone uh, when there are other people around you, I think people would uh, do it much less often. And, you know, people survived without mobile phones for generations. I'm sure we can do it uh, again. I don't think it's very good for people to be constantly anxious uh, because they have these devices. What sort of impact are you seeing in your work that technology has had over recent years in terms of how we work as a, as a society within our communities in terms of sort of human interaction? Has technology improved it as it was meant to or is it actually making that side of humanity worse? I think there's a strong argument to be made that these technologies have actually made us more lonely and more anxious. That's something that was offered as providing us um, connection with other human beings and reassurance, you know, where's my child? Uh, where's my partner? What's going on in the world? Actually, we can see in our own lives, the result is that we are consciously anxious, uh, as uh, you both uh, both described. It clearly has accelerated um, working life, extended working life, so people are working 
you know, on the bus, sadly, on the toilet, uh, <laughs> you know, answering their, answering their emails. None of that is good for us. Now, Z, you were talking, as we said, to Dr. Rodi al Nawar. He's a consultant neurologist at Abu Dhabi's Reem Hospital. What was he saying about that idea that Rob's touching on there, that we are less capable of putting our phones down than we should be? Yes, he said we're d- a lot of us are definitely addicted. He said scrolling too much in public, obviously a sign of addiction, because if you can't put your phone down while you're walking the street, that means, you know, you had to have a look at it. And that's not a good sign. And that's definitely bad news for our brains as well. And he explains why. First of all, when we speak about scrolling on our phone, for sure, we speak about consuming our attention. When we consume our attention, it's becoming critical at certain time when especially it starts posing on our reflex. As we know by studies that first uh, addicting to uh, our phones, our smartphones, our uh, media, usually it leads to anxiety and depression and feeling of isolation at the long term. Our brain is undergoing a complex series of reactions while scrolling on our phone. One of the key players in the process is the dopamine. As you know, dopamine is the pleasure chemical in the brain, and it's referred as the feel-good neurotransmitter. So each time a person, anybody is receiving a new post or receiving a notification, our brain releases a small burst of dopamine. This encourages us to keep scrolling and search for the next dopamine hit. While dopamine increases the pleasure, scrolling can also trigger your body's stress response. And this combination of dopamine and stress can create to the person this paradoxical addiction to scrolling. Interesting stuff. We're going to be staying with this discussion. Mona's been in touch. She says, I think I can go without my phone for some time if I'm going somewhere where it's rude to be on my phone. I hate it when people go out with me and spend more time on their phone than conversing with me. And it's the same at home. I think it's FOMO. I think probably quite a lot of people would agree with that, that feeling that if you put your phone down, you're going to miss something. We're going to be coming back to that with Rob Sparrow in just a minute. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello, hello. Welcome back. We're staying with the topic of phones right now because we're asking, essentially, could you leave your phone at home while you're out in public? And it's not because we've lost our minds or we want to make your life difficult. It's because residents in a French village, the place called Seineport, south of Paris, have voted to do exactly that. In a referendum earlier this month, they voted to ban doom scrolling on their streets, in their shops, at their school gates, in their cafes and restaurants, pretty much everywhere across the entire town. They're putting up little red stickers with pictures of phones with lines through them on all of their shop windows. And it sounds as though a lot of the townspeople are kind of getting involved. I want you to text your thoughts on 4001. Please let me know what you think. These residents here have fairly mixed opinions. It reminds me of that initiative they did in France where you can't contact people outside of uh, their working hours, which sounds really good in theory, but really don't know how that works in practice. I'm all for that rule as long as it applies to pedestrians crossing the streets and drivers. That's about it. Otherwise, people can scroll as much as they want. It's a really good initiative that could encourage people to have some time offline because it's a very common sight nowadays to see people stuck to their phones out in public. 
I'm joined on Teams still by Rob Sparrow. He's a professor of philosophy at the Monash Data Futures Institute. Rob, you're working in a kind of very specific space between ethics and philosophy and technology. And of course, we've seen huge amounts of debate in the past about whether bans actually work to change behaviour. Does this strike you as a, an extreme measure or do you think it's something that people will get on board with? I think it is very strange how uh, governments and institutions, which are quite happy to ban lots of things, suddenly all become liberals when it comes to uh, technology. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, you know, clearly our behaviour has impacts on other people. Uh, the fact that you can go out into a public environment uh, nowadays and no, no one will meet your gaze, no one will say hello uh, to you, they'll all be checking uh, their mobile phone or their Tinder or whatever, uh, that has an impact on public life and public culture. doesn't seem like a silly thing for people to care about. Uh, I'm not sure that criminalising the behaviour uh, is likely to be that practical, but this kind of aspirational legislation where you make a clear statement, look, it would be a better world where people sp- actually spoke to each other in the real uh, in the real world, uh, that uh, seems to me um, quite a um, you know positive step in some ways. Yeah, and I mean that's a point I should make clear. This is not an enforceable ban in a legal sense. Police can't stop people and say you're using a phone, you're going to jail. It's a very much a sort of social pressure situation where the people of the village have voted in a referendum, have decided to do this, and now they're trying to enforce it in the businesses and public spaces. One of the things that it actually specifies in this ruling is that you're not allowed to use your phone if you're sitting on a park bench along with another person. So I guess it's kind of it is very much aimed at what you're saying, which is less about the the logistical side of people walking around and bumping into things, and more about the fact that they're not looking at each other, they're not conversing with each other, and that that's having a negative impact on the sense of community. And I mean, Zina, you've been speaking to Dr. Rodi Al Nawar, consultant neurologist at Reem Hospital in Abu Dhabi, about the sort of psychological impact of phones, haven't you? Yes. And actually, I asked him, you know, some people claim that they're really good multitaskers. They can chat with you and at the same time check their emails on their phone. And he said that's not true. And he said scrolling is genuinely bad for our attention spans. Everybody has an attention span limit. So, for example, as you know, that some people can have like can be more multifunctional or multitask than other people. In the short term, scrolling makes our mind challenging to concentrate on several tasks at the same time. But it decreases the productivity of our brain. And over the long term, the habit of scrolling may contribute to attention disorders and inability to sustain focus for extended periods. Now, Rob, I don't mean to sound like a cynic, but that's kind of by design, isn't it? Are these technology firms not trying to do exactly that to make us need to sort of be constantly fed with these tiny short bursts of dopamine. Your attention is the product that is being sold to advertisers, uh, to uh, companies. The data that you generate in your engagement with your phone is uh, is valuable. Uh, so, yeah, there are very strong incentives for the people designing phones to design them to be as addictive as possible. That's pretty widely 
uh, known nowadays. Insiders in the industry have come out and said, yep, we built this stuff on the model of gaming machines to reward people intermittently so they keep uh, coming back. And it's a very hard thing for an individual uh, to resist, which is why I think, you know, mobilising some peer pressure uh, isn't a silly idea. I mean, I've got 30 seconds left with you. On that basis, if they are, uh, they have been working essentially for a decade to addict us, is this a genie that can be put back in the bottle? Or are we just, there's no way forward? I don't think we should give up yet. (laughs) Very optimistic note to end on. That is Rob Sparrow. He's a professor of philosophy at the Monash Data Futures Institute. And we also heard from Dr. Rodi Al-Nawar, consultant neurologist at Ream Hospital Abu Dhabi. Good morning, how are you? I've got a question for you to start the day. How much time have you spent stuck in traffic recently? Specifically, I'm looking at the Al Kale Road. Last night, I went to see Simple Minds at the Coca-Cola Arena. I left home at half past four because I thought, okay, that allows plenty of time. We'll get up town, we'll sit, we'll have dinner. We can work on our laptops up there. We'll beat the traffic. We did not beat the traffic. I stopped in... JLT, I think it was, to pick something up. And the next thing I knew, I was into car parks. Car parks on Alkale, car parks on Shakeside Road. It was incredibly busy. And it seems like it's an issue all over the city right now. And for longer hours, like longer through the day than it used to be. Recently, we spoke to Michael Manville from the Luskin School of Public Affairs at the University of California about this issue. He's a congestion expert and he explained that over prolonged periods of time, seeing congestion can actually serve to get some of us out of our cars. One of the biggest deterrents to driving at a busy time is congestion itself. And so if you add capacity and reduce congestion and make the typical peak hour trip a little bit faster, uh, in pretty short order, what you're going to find is that new cars are attracted to that higher speed. And then by being attracted to that higher speed, they actually eat away at it. And so within six months to a year or something like that, what you see is that the road is moving more vehicles, but all those vehicles are going just as slow as they had been before you added the extra lane. Now, what's interesting is that On the business breakfast this morning, I mentioned we were going to be discussing this. I've had two messages so far from people saying the 611 used to be free flowing, but in the last year, it's become the new 311. So that would kind of suggest that what Michael Manville is saying there is true, that we move to the roads that are freer flowing. So I guess the point is that we need to free up some movement. And the good news is our officials are not going to sit and wait for us to get tired and stay at home. They are doing something about it. This week, they've announced that a 700 million dirham RTA contract has been awarded for major upgrades to Al Kale Road. It's one of a number of infrastructure projects we're going to look at this morning. But this particular one is going to result in 3,300 metres of new bridges, upgrades in seven key areas, including Maidan and JFC. JVC, sorry, and officials say it should expand traffic flow by about 19,600 vehicles an hour. But how do you build something like that without causing more congestion in the short term? Well, to discuss that and another major project that we'll come to in a moment, I'm joined now in the studio by our regular mega projects expert, Chris Seymour, the MD of Mace Middle East. Chris, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Very pleased to be here. How big a logistical challenge is this project, first of all? 
It's uh, quite a considerable challenge, um, but it's not one that uh, Dubai is uh, not used to. Uh, Sizable project, however, 700 million dirhams is a, is a large project. And I think this is what we're going to feel is it's going to be really focused around two locations. It's technically actually seven mini projects, but really for me, it looks like two locations. So it's really focusing around that big, complicated interchange where you have the Maidan uh, traffic coming in, you have uh, Zabil Palace Road, you have Udmesa also feeding in, also um, Financial Centre Road. And there is always a lot of traffic jams there, a lot of congestion there. And so a lot of the investment is going to be around what we would call highway structures. So you mentioned the, uh, the bridge is going to be a number of bridges actually easing the flow of traffic onto the al Road and off the al Road at that, uh, uh, at that real pinch point. And then the other location is is all the way further down the other end is really around that jvc and our camilla uh, street interchange as well again another pinch point a lot of traffic uh, is there uh, every every night even during the weekends you will see traffic jams there and so again that investment is there to ease that jam now uh, of course uh, you can't uh, you can't do that without actually creating some disruption in the process and yeah. that is one of the things we are going to have to uh, uh, put up with unfortunately i would estimate it's uh, at least a, a couple of years work in total it will be staged however to make sure that the uh, flow of traffic is not hindered too much uh, but that's the sort of period of time we could uh, we could expect and then it'll improve i think the w- one of the interesting things is is that it's absolutely true the 611 used to be a very very big road with no traffic on it and you could you know whiz down there and, and get to where you want to quite uh, quite quickly but as Dubai expands outwards, as those developments start taking place further inland, then the, then the flow of traffic is then going to start being concentrated on those further roads. And uh, those who've been here uh, a while more than a decade, I remember uh, Al-Kale Road itself was actually quite a free-flowing road and you could get to where you wanted to uh, very quickly on that road. It's now uh, not the case. So it is a little bit of a, um, the expansion of Dubai as a city is really creating this. And we, we love Dubai because it keeps reinventing itself. Um, it's always growing. That population growth creates demands. And, uh, and, and that demand, unfortunately, creates some congestion there. And I mean, we're seeing new developments being built all over the city. But you were saying something interesting earlier about the, the actual shape of Dubai means that we can only sort of grow in one direction, which is inland. And that's going to keep bringing all of that traffic, which still has to get to the coast. So with all of these developments being built and all of these new people arriving, how critical is it that we improve traffic infrastructure and that we do it before those projects are completed and and don't add to an existing problem? Really really good couple of themes there, uh, Jen. So the the first thing, uh, you're absolutely right. The uh, Dubai is a waterfront city. I'd call it very much a waterfront city. And it's got a lot of its value, not just in real estate, but in terms of tourism and business as well, from from the focus around its waterfront. And we've talked on this programme before about that uh, that sort of water theme. Uh, Dubai has done something that many cities in the world have not, which is extending out into the sea with obviously the Palm Jebel Ali, the Palm uh, Jumeirah and the world island so it's made a, the most of that axis which most cities can't get to however there is a limit and once you've exhausted the opportunities there you can only go inland now this is a good contrast with a city for example like Riyadh, for example which is the if you like the other end of the extreme right in the middle of saudi arabia uh, it can grow outwards in every direction and from a road transport perspective you can have ring roads which are very efficient at, at uh, uh, preventing 
uh, real holdups because the traffic keeps going aflow, you know, around it basically in a circle. So it's quite efficient at doing that. Dubai does not have that luxury because it's got, in a way, the advantage of the waterfront. The challenge of the waterfront is that you can have difficulty in logistics. So that, that's, that's the one thing. So we've got to love Dubai. And unfortunately, we're going to have to put up with a bit of traffic from that perspective. The, the theme around building ahead, <clears throat> ahead of the demand is a complex one, because whilst the communities are getting built, the RTA as, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, if you like, the roads developer has to, first of all, test people's behaviours and what else might happen and what other developments are going to come up and what speed to be able to monitor where is, those, where is the traffic going to be concentrated. You can do it with traffic modelling, but it's important to actually see what is happening, how is the city developing. And with a road, before you build it, or before you improve it, you've got to be very sure you need it because it's a, it's a big, expensive fixed asset. Once a, ro- a road is a road, it can't be repurposed into anything else. Unlike, a, for example, a building, you can repurpose into something else. If, for example, you build an office building and uh, it's possible to uh, repurpose that into residential, road is a road. And so before you build it, you've got to be sure you need it. And so that tends to be why we see uh, it's quite frustrating for residents, but we tend to see roads following the demand rather than being ahead of the demand. Having said that, let's not have too short a memory. The 611 was exactly that road. It was built yeah. ahead of demand. And now, of course, it's filled up. So, you know, to a certain extent, I think Dubai has been a lot further, a uh, lot more farsighted than, than many other cities in the world, which literally just, just wait until push comes to absolute shove and then make the investment. Such interesting stuff. Chris is staying with us and we're going to be looking a bit more at that theme of us being a waterfront city because we're going to be looking at another major improvement project at Dubai Creek next. That's starting from Sunday. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello, hello. Welcome back. You're listening to The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8 and we're talking about Alkil Road. But it's not the only major project in town. We're obviously looking at that upgrading there that has been confirmed this week. But officials have also announced fairly significant plans, actually, to upgrade the pier at Dubai Creek. And it's happening very, very soon. Dubai Municipality says it's going to rebuild damaged supporting walls on the Dira side of the creek this weekend. It's happening on Sunday. And that's the first of a sort of fairly major round of works on both sides of the water, which are aimed at partly breathing new life into the area, but primarily to reduce the risk of flooding that's been created by essentially 50 years of erosion off those walls. Now, of course, it's one of the most historic areas of the city. I'm still joined by Chris Seymour, who's MD of Mace Mina. And Chris, it sounds like that's quite an undertaking. Yes, from a, uh, an engineering and construction perspective, this is quite a, a quite a large project. 112 million uh, dirhams um, is in compared to the the work that's going to be done on the uh, Alcale Road. Pro- possibly not quite so much, but it's very much concentration in a short uh, a, a short area. So this is upgrading the walls on the on the Dira side and the Burdubai side, and this is ra- round about where um, maybe we'd get on an Abrigo across the creek. It's right there, and they're also the docks there. So those key walls are absolutely. Uh, are just so important to not just the 
um, the I guess the tourism side of things, but also the continuation of that of that trade with the docking. So I think there's really two lenses here. The first one is around Dubai's in investment in, if you like, the heritage of the, of Dubai. It all started there. There was a creek there um, back in the 1800s. You can there's there's evidence that that creek was there. It was dredged in the 1960s, so it's about 60 years ago. It was it was actually dredged out and ex, and its length was extended towards wow. the Al Alcor. And um, and now, of course, the uh, it, it's now been connected right up through Business Bay, which we, we we're all uh, aware of. So there's very much um, the context of that heritage and that history is important, and it just shows that Dubai is in, investing in that. And I think the other lens is really the continual focus that Dubai has got around waterfront, which we talked about before. This is a very important piece of waterfront uh, from a uh, not just the historical piece, but also from a, a, a tourism um, uh, perspective as well. And, and that really flows through to all of Dubai's waterfront, including uh, the rest of the creek, but also the, uh, the, the palms as well. Um, the, so if we look at the construction engineering uh, side of it, in, in terms of what's actually happening, it'll be kicked off on Sunday. But the process is going to be very much sequential key walls like this have to be done in sections because you can't just do one section otherwise it will destabilize the rest of it so it's literally a matter of almost stitching it together and it's done in a in a particular pattern to make sure that the walls stay intact whilst the work is is taking place um it's some of them are quite so you may only see for example two or three meters above the water but below it's probably going down three or four times that that oh, depth wow. actually so it's, it's quite an undertaking this um no surprise it needs to be done these are quite old walls and uh, you know 50 years ago the probably the climatic threats were less and the threat of flooding was potentially uh, less as well um, and so there's that upgrade needed to make sure that there's more resilience uh, for Dubai for that that particular place from for example um, storm surges or or those other uh, other events that, uh, that that we're seeing these days did they happen in history yes they did but the I guess the tolerance of that type of event is much lower now. We would expect that, uh, you know, a Dubai as, uh, Dubai as, as, as a mature city taking care of its residents, it really needs to focus on these things uh, a lot more. So there's a number of lenses for this. Uh, it's not a simple process in, in engineering and construction terms. Um, but for me, it's about the heritage. It is about that waterfront, but it's also there is a, uh, there is a resilience piece as well uh, that, that's important here. I was down there recently. We did that, the Abra trip, as you mentioned. You know, that one Durham Abra trip's a bit of a, I think it's a Dubai classic, isn't it? You've got guests in town, you go down there. I've never seen it so busy. The queues to get on the Abra were stretching the length of the pier and it seemed like there were more boats than there have ever been. Is that what's causing this damage? Is it just increased traffic or is this about the weather or is it age or is it a sort of combination of all of the above? Com combination of age and weather. Um, the intensity of use by uh, tourists and, and even, to be honest with you, the docking of the trade craft is not going to cause a sort of deterioration we're okay. talking about now. I think the increase in... Uh, in tourism in that area is also part of the investment in Al-Sif, that big development on the Bur Dubai side has definitely drawn uh, the, the tourists in, which means I think what that means is that this area of Dubai is even more important now to preserve. And, uh, and this is part of, the, uh, part of the job to do that. And I mean, you use the word preserve there. I'm from Edinburgh, which is a very historic city. And I know that there's the character side of things and you want to preserve things, but it also presents real challenges, doesn't it? Sort of in terms of 
how you do this with the best possible materials, the most long-lasting materials, while also keeping things looking and feeling as though they are the original materials. How do you go about that? And especially in a what is essentially mostly an underwater wall as well. I mean, that's, that's quite an undertaking. It, it's quite an undertaking. This, um, the, the, the wall is, sounds quite a simple element, but it's, yeah. it's having to do a number of things. It's having to be uh, correct from an engineering perspective. It's got to pr- provide longevity, but also it's got to look the part as well. And um, the, the, the difficulty of combining all, th- all three of those things means that the planning of this project will be quite a long time in the past, actually. So this has been about to happen for some time. It's not just a, a very quick study and very quick design this has been happening for some time i've got 30 seconds left with you but and this is probably a really stupid question but how do you repair a wall underwater uh, <clears throat> i expect <laughs> that what they're going to do is they're going to probably create uh, what we'll call sheet piling which will extend out into the creek they'll then pump the water out from next to the um uh, the key wall, and then they'll do the work in the dry, effectively. That's how they'll do it. That's how I suspect <laughs> they'll do it. Fascinating stuff. I think we could probably talk to Chris all day, as usual, but that is all we've got time for at the moment. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello and welcome back to the agenda. Now, as you might have heard, we were just talking about some fairly significant upgrades that are going on at Dubai Creek starting this weekend. And it's not the only way that we're focusing on water because the Dubai Boat Show is also getting underway today. What a link. And in dramatic fashion, we'll be speaking shortly to the people behind a headline grabbing race that's taking place there today. We're talking jetpacks. I'm not kidding about that. But first, we wanted to find out a bit more about what else is going to be happening down there at Dubai Harbour over the next few days and how all that recent development we've been seeing down there might have changed what we can expect from the show. So earlier, I caught up with Abdullah bin Habtour. He's the Chief Portfolio Management Officer at Shamal Holding and the owner and curator of Dubai Harbour. And he explained why officials are so excited to be hosting the show again. We are thrilled today to be host venue of the Dubai International Boat Show for the third year in a row. We see ourselves as the strategic. The uh, Dubai International Boat Show has been going on for the last 30 years. We're proud to see International Boat Show on its journey. We have seen tremendous growth year on year. For us, the Dubai International Boat Show is an opportunity to uh, showcase our district and our destination. It gives us an opportunity to host, and you know how much we love to host in Dubai. We also see the Dubai International Boat Show as a, as a platform for a thriving leisure boating uh, industry in Dubai. Now, as you mentioned, the show's been going on for, for 30 years, but we've seen a huge amount of development at Dubai Harbour in, in very recent years. Can you tell me a bit about how that project is going? Is it being successfully received? Do people like what is happening at the harbour? Absolutely. We think of Dubai Harbour as an, as an attractive uh, seafront, uh, seafront district that uh, continues to evolve and continues to gain at- attraction. We are multifaceted. As you know, within uh, Dubai Harbour, we have the largest marina and we have a large residential district. On the, on the marina front, we have seen uh, tremendous growth compared to the same period last year. We are now nearing 
90% occupancy in, in our marina. I would say uh, that this is 25% higher than where it was for the same pe- period a year ago. On the residential side, we have delivered 10 buildings. We have nine buildings under, under construction. We believe that it has been well received and we see it as one of Dubai's newest different districts. Uh, we like to think about it as a man- manifestation of Dubai's urban development plan, uh, where we originally conceived the design of the of the district to connect the residents more with the with the sea, and we have all the amenities to facilitate that. Now we're talking on the show this morning about major upgrades on the Alkil Road, work that's going on at Dubai Creek, and of course we're going to be seeing work at Dubai Harbour as well. We heard recently about that new bridge that's going to come to connect the area to Sheikhzayed Road. The numbers you're talking about there, we've already seen huge growth in people visiting the harbour. Will this new bridge impact on that? Do you expect that it's going to bring even more people to the area? What do you hope to, will be the impact of that? The impact of the bridge is planned to reduce the travel time from uh, from Sheikh Zayed Road, sitting now currently at about 13 minutes, down to three minutes, with uh, with a free-flowing bridge directly from Sheikh Zayed Road. So it will definitely improve the, the experience, and it was part of our plan. We think that it will continue to support the positioning of the of the district as a premier seafront district, and more importantly, support the the experience of our residents and our users of the marina. And on the residents front, we've got more buildings to come, haven't we? How much more developments are we expecting, and what are you going to be building there? We, we see Dubai Harbour as a, as a large residential district, so you will definitely be seeing more residential developments in, in Dubai Harbour. Our pace of development has been healthy with the market demand. We think that ultimately when Dubai Harbour is, is fully developed, it will host more than 40,000 people. And we are ramping up our infrastructure developments like the bridge to be able to host that number of people and the number of de- development. There has definitely been great demand the last two years for waterfront and seafront residential developments in Dubai. And in the meantime, how many people are you expecting over the next few days? And and for people who are coming down, what can they expect to see that maybe hasn't happened in previous years at the boat show? Look, the the boat show is definitely you know one of those defining events on Dubai's event calendar. It's an exciting show for for the industry, but but also for the the public in Dubai. We are targeting to host more than thirty thousand people this year. We're also uh, hosting more than one thousand exhibitors and around two hundred boats on on display. We love to think of the boat show as an opportunity to host and as an opportunity to showcase with different amenities and different experiences for all. Abdullah bin Hamtur there. He's the Chief Portfolio Management Officer at Shamal Holding and the owner and curator of Dubai Harbour on the boat show, which is kicking off today. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello, hello. Welcome back. Talking about a topic now that I kind of 
would never have expected that I'd be talking about on the radio, if I'm perfectly honest. And perhaps, I mean, between this and the fact I was at a simple Minds gig last night, I'm maybe showing my age here. But growing up, I was fairly convinced that by this point we'd all be sort of in possession of hoverboards, flying cars, a Jetsons thing that I could get ready in in the morning without any hassle. And it's kind of disappointing that we're not really. But turns out not everyone is as hampered by gravity as I am because... The boat show is opening today with a jet suit race. No, really. It's the Dubai Jet Suit Race. It's part of the Dubai Boat Show and it is being organised in partnership with Gravity Industries. Now, Gravity has flown at 260 live events in over 45 countries since it developed its jet suit in 2017. I don't know where to start. I'm joined now on Teams by the firm's founder and chief test pilot, Richard Browning. Richard, good morning. I'm not going to lie. Good morning to you too. (laughs) Hello. This sounds terrifying. Can you tell me a bit, first of all, about this suit? Is it as I'm imagining it? Are you literally flying through the air with some sort of jet on you? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Uh, So quite a few people have probably seen over the last years maybe what looked like a soldier flying onto a boat or a medic flying up a mountain we as you kindly listed have been all over the world including flying in dubai many times before uh, and using this equipment it's it, it potentially to the you know the, the, the eye of the beholder it does look pretty terrifying but actually you're using a bunch of little jet engines that are, are attached to your arms and your back and you as a human are maneuvering them so in a really interesting way, it's as almost manual as a bicycle or skiing or snowboarding. So you're not really a passenger to a machine. You are just adding about 1,500 horsepower to you, which maybe now <laughs> falls in the category again of being terrifying. But believe me, it's a be- sort of beautiful, blissful experience of flying it. The amount of times I bump into things, I'm not sure I need added horsepower <laughs> if I'm entirely honest. <laughs> How fast do you fly in the suit? So we set a Guinness World Record some years back at about 130 kilometers an hour, I think it was. Uh, it will go a lot faster, but actually, even over water, which is where we do the more dramatic stuff, even over water, we just don't choose to really push it much beyond that. What it's really good at is is starting up within 20 seconds, uh, allowing you to skim low over the ground or any kind of uh, terrain and get to a location to perform a task and then self-extract again. So hence all the military and medical applications. But it, we are here this week delivering the world's first jet suit race because for years I've had this ambition. You know, we've been running, I've been running this company for seven years based off a frankly ludicrous dream and now it's a big company. <laughs> um, I had this dream of like, there's only one thing better than flying a jet suit and that's doing it grinning stupidly alongside another pilot flying next to you. (laughs) So why not use racing as a medium to push the technology and push the capability and at the same time entertain millions of people? And we were a whisker away from delivering it in March 2020 and and it won't take a genius to realise that was bad to COVID timing. Uh, And so we are back and uh, we are very grateful to the support from all sorts of entities in Dubai, not least the Sports Council and Skydive Dubai, uh, for allowing us to host it here. And it should be super spectacular. So, as you say, we've seen videos of of individual people using various sort of flying mechanisms over the years. But you're talking about a race here. How many grinning adrenaline seekers are we talking about having in the air at once and and how safe is it so um so firstly this is we are calling this a showcase race because uh quite 
self-admittedly, um, most of the pilots are our own team pilots. Um, we've got a whole bunch of guys and girls taking part in this. And uh, we've also got a UAE pilot as well uh, taking part. When he, frankly, he's only had 12 days training and he's flying spectacularly. So um, he is an example of some of our now uh, around 600 clients or so we've had over the years that have trained in the UK, in Los Angeles, um, or soon to be able to train in, the, in, in Dubai as well. We're going to set up a training rig here at Skydive Dubai in the coming months, we hope. Um, we are going to be increasingly bringing in those client pilots and sponsored pilots and athletes from other domains to come and race this equipment. And in terms of safety, so we do it over water. If, if those listening can imagine the Red Bull air race of flying around inflatable pylons over water, you do that because if the planes get it wrong, they've got some you know, chance of being able to land in the water. Now, they are doing much higher speeds than we are and much higher. We are flying four or five meters at, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 kilometers an hour around inflatable obstacles. So if you get it wrong, you fall in the water, you float perfectly well with the equipment and you get picked up and then um, told off by the uh, team falling in the water. But um, uh, <laughs> it is actually, you know, as sports go, incredibly safe compared to most things that you do, for instance, in motorsport. Blimey. I mean, you say it sounds safe. I still think that I would be a danger to society with one of these things. But how long are we talking about before this becomes a sort of mass use technology? I mean, in Dubai, we see loads of people on those kind of, I can't even remember what they're called. Is it a jet foil? You know, like the sort of floating surfboards. We've seen the, the, the funny shoes that put you up above the sea. I think this is a country where we have a lot of early adopters of technology. Are we going to be in a position soon where there's people flying all over the palm with these things? So there's kind of two answers, I guess, one more relevant to Dubai than the other. So the the boring answer, let's say the UK, the British answer, (laughs) Um, (laughs) the glass half empty answer is that, you know, this is about as practical as a Formula One car to go to the to the shops. (laughs) It is a car. There's a bit of room for a pint of milk, but it would be an outrageously expensive, loud, fast, overly fast way of going to the shops. The other half, the glass half full answer is that you see technologies start in a rudimentary way. The first motor car was considered noisy, crazy, you know, ludicrous compared to a horse. And and yet look where cars have got in the last 120 years. So never say never. But for now, it is a niche mobility system that has performed outrageously well in special forces mobility, SWAT team mobility and medic response. Uh, But I'm delighted that also in the world of entertainment, it, I think, has got a big place. I mean, what is the practical point of a jet ski? And yet there's millions of them. They are very entertaining to use um, and have a small number of applications. So never say never. And we have built an electric version, but it needs better batteries um, to really be compelling. But yeah, never say never. But in the meantime, we are absolutely determined to really blow people's minds with seeing what, frankly, to most people looks like real life Marvel superheroes flying around. I can well imagine. I've only got 30 seconds left with you, but I've also got a little boy. So it'd be very remiss of me not to ask, how can we come and see this happening? Yes. So uh, we are flying on the piece of water between Skydive Dubai, their runway there and the boat show. We are starting around 2 p.m. and flying until uh, 4.30. If you come down to Dubai Harbour, um, there is a viewpoint there, and it's also the um, ferry terminal, or sorry, cruise terminal B, that whole area. Um, we are doing a series of heats 
uh, with individual pilots flying and then culminating in a big five pilot race and then the award ceremony. So it's going to be a fantastic afternoon. Sounds absolutely amazing. That is Richard Browning there. He is the founder and chief test pilot of Gravity Industries, which will be showcasing those jet suits at the Dubai Boat Show later on today. You can get down there and watch them in action from 2 p.m. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the agenda. I am going to be speaking now to producer Zina Zalamea, who went away to Abu Dhabi after the show yesterday, told me she was going to be working at an event that was all about startups. And then about 25 minutes after she arrived in Abu Dhabi, sent me a message saying she was in the same room as Idris Elba, which I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty jealous. Zina, were you working or were you celeb spotting? bit of both, actually. <laughs> so there's this event called Impact Summit in Abu Dhabi, and it's hosted by Hub71. And we've spoken to him before, uh, the CEO, Ahmed Ali Alwan. And basically, Hub71 is a startup hub in the capital. It's where, you know, startups go to get funding, to set up. And basically, if you want to go global, you approach them and work with them. And one of the things that they've done uh, at this Impact Summit is they've invited a bunch of celebrities. So it was star-studded and it was just so nice to be there among the, you know, crowd of high-profile people. So there was football star Paul Pogba. There was a boxing sensation Amir Khan, who lives in the UAE anyway. Idris Elba, who's basically, you know, a returning resident. And Trevor Noah. Oh, um, I love him. I know, but the, the celebrity I got closest to was Idris. How close? Well, there was a glass separating us, a, a glass window separating us. A glass window? Yeah, I was so close to getting an interview with him. But obviously, you know, these things had to be scheduled and he probably uh, didn't want to be disturbed. I don't know. But he was speaking at Impact Summit in Abu Dhabi. I was so close. And that was going to be my story for today. I feel like I'm the only person in Dubai that hasn't met Idris Elba at this point. <laughs> and it's really deeply upsetting. I'm starting to take it quite personally, like he's avoiding me. <laughs> I'll tell him when I finally get to speak to him. You got beef with Jennifer Crichton. Just sort it out with her. I want to meet him. But you did meet a Love Island contestant. Is that right? <laughs> well, to many, he was a Love Island runner-up contestant. But of course, to Chris and Robbie from Offscript and the sports team, he is the brother of Tyson Fury, also a boxer. And he actually fought YouTuber turned businessman turned boxer, Jake Paul, <laughs> over in Saudi Arabia this time last year. Anyway, Chris and Robbie had a proper chat with him. They sat down with him. And this is one of the things that Tommy... Tommy Fury said about the future of boxing in the Middle East. 100%. I think I think the future of the sport is here in the Middle East. You know, Abu Dhabi, Saudi. I think it's all. I think it's all there. So um, I think the Middle East is is where you know it's going to be the home for sport. Um, and yeah, at the end of the day, it's every, what everybody wants to see. You know, the best fight, the best. YouTuber turned businessman turned boxer might be my favourite multi-hyphenate title yet. Love it. You could turn it to so many things. That's, that's aspiration right there. But they weren't all just there to, to have great job titles. 
No, yeah, they've been speaking on stage and uh, sharing their success stories as entrepreneurs, as, you know, in their respective careers, and they're promoting their work in a big way. Idris, for example, has been to the UAE several times. As we know, he's been seeking support for this development in Sierra Leone called the Sherbro Island City. Um, he's passionate about this project, and that part of Sierra Leone needs an upgrade because it's been abandoned, it's been neglected for years, and he really really wants to revive it for the people of Sierra Leone. And because this island is going to be a sustainable one, you know, it's the year of sustainability. So he's really looking to the UAE um, to find uh, partners so that could support him with Sherbro Island. So I didn't speak to him, but he's been very vocal. There's lots of interviews uh, with him. This is him on a TV show in Sierra Leone talking about his plans for Sherbro Island City. The restorative aspect is including energy, including communications, including sustainably developing around um, Shebro. Shebro has a lot of mangroves. The idea is to integrate our plants within what, what is there without removing. Second, third stage is about building uh, essentially what is a city, multi-sector city, so an industrial, industrial area, which again, hopefully we want to uh, create around renewable energy. Really interesting stuff, that. And I'm really intrigued by this Hub 71 because it's it's a place where startups, as you say, go when they're looking for funding, when they aspire to go global. And I, I ran a startup over COVID when I was back in Scotland for a few years. And it's really hard to kind of establish yourself to get funding. And these sort of incubators... Until you've actually been in one, I don't think you necessarily understand how big a role they can play in the success of these small businesses. But you were hearing all about it from the CEO there, and it is really interesting stuff. Yes, and actually it's been five years since they've established Hub 71, lots of startups, lots of challenges. And, you know, they had Sam Altman last year, so it was a big year for them. I've been speaking to Ahmed Ali Alwan. He's the CEO of Hub 71. And he just talked about the startup community at Hub 71 to begin with. Uh, today, we have more than 260 startups that's part of our community, about 200 of which are part of our programs. Uh, these companies have raised uh, 5.4 billion dirhams in funding. They've generated 3.5 billion dirhams in revenue. They've created more than 1,100 direct jobs. And there are a few key countries that you really want to tap in terms of, you know, forging partnerships. Uh, one of them is South Korea. Tell us about the other countries and what's the reason why you're keen to partner with them? South Korea, Singapore, Saudi, the U.S., different places in Europe also all have uh, different value propositions that could uh, we could avail. What do founders look for generally? Top three things where to set up their business. They do look for firstly a community. So I say that often, but it is um, I can't. Uh, I can't say it enough, actually. The importance of a community for a founder is tantamount because there are different uh, places that can offer different things. Some of them at uh, different areas might offer funding, they might offer access to market, etc. But they would first look for where can I find a community that would support me in my journey. And uh, lastly, it's uh, the right guidance and mentorship and advice. Um, ment uh, the life of a founder is, can get very lonely very quick, uh, quickly. It perhaps goes back to the community element, but to have those seasoned uh, people around you that say that, hey, this is okay, you're going to get through this, 
<laughs> Every day you wake up is a uh, is a blessing, is a success. You keep pushing through is what ultimately builds a great uh, entrepreneur. So I would say these three. You had uh, Sam Altman last year. He was here earlier in Dubai for the World Government Summit and his words made headlines saying the UAE should be an AI hub for both AI startups and regulation. We were actually talking about deep fakes earlier with a professor. You know, the technology accelerates so much that regulation can barely keep up. Oh, yeah, that's something I've actually said a couple of times. I heard it also from a, um, a colleague uh, of mine that te- that uh, technology will outpace, uh, always outpace regulation. And I think one of the key ad- advantages that Abu Dhabi has is uh, having a progressive uh, regulatory frameworks. Obviously, we'll have to be very constructive about any type of um, um, input um, that we'd like to see get to evolving a regulatory frameworks that make sense for a technology environment, but it also is a key competitive edge that uh, people appreciate. And I'll use an example is that the Abu Dhabi global market had crypto digital assets regulations for a while. How does this relate to people who are living here, expats in the UAE? Why do we care that there are startups from all over the world setting up here? I think I'll bring it back to something I said earlier, which is like uh, venture capital um, is synonymous with impact. So even today, let's look at the electric vehicle example um, today it's becoming very popular one yes it became more commercially viable but uh, ultimately it is a solution that was based on innovation that ultimately now has a positive impact on the world and this is what people like getting close to is like investing in and um, being close to initiative that will have a material impact on the world but can actually revolutionize uh, how the human condition I would say um, and just how we interact with uh, one another and so forth so uh, it is an appealing environment to be close to this uh, sector this ecosystem. For me personally, it's such a fulfilling uh, journey to see founders rise above the different challenges they face every day and to be where we can. Part of that uh, story is something enamoring. Some people would say the last one is the most important one. It's just a lot of fun. <laughs> the space is a lot of fun. It's a lot of great energy, people working towards the same uh, goals, wanting to do, you know, make for a better world. So it just makes it very fun. Amazing stuff. Love it. Yeah, it's Ahmad Ali Alwan. He's the CEO of Hub71. And he's right. You know, when startups set up here and they develop these really cool prototypes, we'll be the first ones to use them. It's really interesting, isn't it? I'm really intrigued by how those things sort of end up out in the public domain, that sort of process of getting things from prototype to, to people. It's really interesting. I know electric vehicles, flying taxis and all the rest of it. And jetpacks, indeed. Jetpacks. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more at The Agenda's Live, Monday to Friday, 10 to 1.